Hello, and welcome to Cultural Diplomacy and the Global Cold War, brought to you by the History Department, the Clio Society, and the College of Arts and Sciences at The Ohio State University, and by the Bexley Public Library. My name is Nick Breifogel, and I'm an Associate Professor of History and Director of the Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, and I'll be your host and moderator today. Thank you for joining us. During the Cold War, cultural diplomacy emerged as an important aspect of relations between states across the globe. Exhibitions, concerts, performances, book readings, and film screenings captured the ideological message of each side as they showed conflicting ways of life in the global Cold War context. Based on her recent book, The Cold War from the Margins, a small socialist state on the global cultural scene. Theodora Dragostinova will talk today about the importance of Cold War culture in a global perspective, tracing the cultural contacts of small Bulgaria, from the British Museum and New York City's Metropolitan, to New Lexington, Ohio, to Mexico City, New Delhi, and Lagos. Let's take a moment to get to know our speaker. Theodora Dragostinova is an associate professor of history at the Ohio State University. A native of Bulgaria, she completed her PhD at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Her work focuses on nationalism, migration, global history, and Cold War culture. Geographically, her research is focused on Eastern Europe with an emphasis on the Balkans and Bulgaria. But she also engages with comparative approaches to modern Europe in a global perspective. Dragostinova is the author of Between Two Motherlands, Nationality and Emigration Among the Greeks in Bulgaria. And she is co-editor of Beyond Mosque, Church and State, Alternative Narratives of the Nation in the Balkans. Her most recent book, The Cold War from the Margins, appeared from Cornell University Press in May of this year, 2021. With that introduction, let me lay out the plan. Professor Dragostinova will begin her talk, uh, sorry, will begin with her talk, and then she'll take questions uh, from you, and we'll open things up for discussion. If you're interested in asking a question, please write it in the Q&A function that is at the bottom of your screen. Uh, we'll do our best to answer as many of these questions as we can uh, during the time that we have. Now, without further ado, let me pass you over to Professor Theodora Dragostinova, who will take us on an exploration of cultural diplomacy, and the global Cold War. Over to you, Professor Dragostinova. Thank you very much, Professor Breifogo. It is really pleasure being here and pleasure talking to you. Thank you very much to the Clio Society and to the College of Arts and Sciences for the invitation to participate. And thank you for those of you who are tuning in to listen uh, to this uh, talk. I will jump right in uh, by sharing my slides um, and starting my presentation on cultural diplomacy and the global Cold War. And just um, as a context, I want to remind that the Cold War developed out of the political confrontations between the Soviet Union and the United States after World War II. And while the diplomatic, economic, and military aspects of this conflict were extremely important, culture also emerged as a key battleground between East and West immediately after the war. 
On one level, the Cold War can be interpreted as a struggle between ideas. And so cultural relations played an important role because they structured the ideological content of political, economic, and military relations through the transmission of ideas and values. And I have listed here some of these key ideas and values that each side, namely the United States and the Soviet Union, wanted to promote on a world stage because each one of them was trying to secure spheres of influences, not only in Europe, but also throughout the world. So in this context, both East and West heavily invested in cultural diplomacy to convince the world in the superiority of their respective political and economic models. This is the context of the battle for hearts and minds, which structured cultural diplomacy. Culture thus became an expression of each side's way of life or each side's ideas of state, society, and rights. In this context, culture functioned in many ways as the flip side of ideology, that is, as a type of propaganda. In the East and West alike, the goal of official cultural programs was to, quote, pour ideas and values in the minds of foreign publics, end quote. Yet each side also had to consider their audiences, which allowed for flexibility with the ideological content of these events. And that led to robust, inspiring cultural programs flourishing throughout the Cold War. Now, just a little bit of context again. In 1958, the Soviet Union and the United States signed an agreement for cultural cooperation, which created the template uh, of official cultural exchange uh, our very, again, robust program that developed throughout the Cold War with exchanges uh, in international fairs, cultural visits, concerts, exhibitions, film screenings, book readings, and so forth, uh, which all became Cold War weapons. And here you are seeing on this bottom slide the famous kitchen debate between uh, Khrushchev and then Vice President Nixon uh, in Moscow in 1959, when a debate about Cold War kitchens turned out to be a debate about ideas of state and ways of uh, life. And also in this context, what we are seeing is that both sides recruited artists, entertainers, intellectuals to travel and deliver the desired image of the state abroad. Most famously, I have just chosen two really famous examples here, the international tours of black jazz musicians that spread the ideas of the American dream and freedom, and also the Bolshoi uh, ballet performers who similarly promoted the Soviet ideas of modernity and uh, equality have become some of the most noted examples in this cultural diplomacy. And all of these, uh, all of these ideas are the starting point of my book, which looks at the use of cultural diplomacy, not by a superpower, but by a small socialist state on the margins of Europe, namely Bulgaria. And the key question asked in this book is, what was the role of cultural diplomacy in the global Cold War context, outside of the superpower influences and outside of the strictly European and North American contexts. So to give you some idea, a flurry of international cultural events marked public life in late socialist Bulgaria. 
Those included the visits of out of the ordinary, often flamboyant foreign dignitaries, such as, for example, right here, Angela Davis from the United States. The appearance of recognizable Western cultural icons, such as, again, we see here Tina Turner, but also Ray Charles, Henry Moore, Erskine Caldwell. The exhibitions of masterworks by Leonardo da Vinci, uh, sh the showings of Rubens, Van Gogh, Monet, Rembrandt, and so forth. During this time, one event stood out, the International Assembly of Children, which was held under the auspices of the United Nations and brought hundreds of children from throughout the world to Bulgaria in 1979. And you see uh, here some of these children from Uruguay, Turkey, uh, Tunisia, Tanzania, the Soviet Union, and Syria, just you know, a small sample of the various countries that participated in this sort of cultural uh, diplomacy. In the 1970s, the world seems to be coming to Bulgaria, a small socialist state that proudly embraced its role in advancing a new global cultural flourishing. While the country welcomed the world, Bulgarians also traversed the globe, sending its representatives throughout the world. And many of them also participated in the opening of museum and art exhibits, presided over book discussions and film screenings, received musical and performance prizes, and spoke about the importance of preserving one's culture and historical um, heritage. And you're seeing here images from Vienna, from New York, New Lexington, Ohio, and actually, uh, this is a picture of my family in Nigeria in 1979, just to give you a small sample of the variety of contacts that were established during this uh, time period. By official records, between 1977 and 1981, small Bulgaria with a population of 8.7 million in 1975 organized over 38,000 cultural events throughout the world, uh, highlighting the far-reaching global aspiration of the communist elites in charge of the country. Now, it is very likely that these numbers were exaggerated because they were produced by the Sociological Institute of the Bulgarian Communist Party. Yet what matters here is the geography of cultural contact because it's obvious from the map, the Bulgarian cultural events touched literally all six continents with the exception of uh, Antarctica. Now, these ambitious cultural programs of small Bulgaria were connected to the celebration of an important national anniversary in 1981, 1300 years since the establishment of the medieval Bulgarian state in 681. And the occasion of this anniversary, the communist elites in charge of the country organized a huge, this huge number of cultural events that I spoke about previously. The goal was to inform the world of the rich historical contributions of one of the oldest states of Europe. And you can see here this column symbolizing the past, but also to advertise the contemporary achievements of modern socialist Bulgaria. And you see the scaffolding here at the background, but also you see in this other poster, sort of like the march to, uh, to communism. You start from 681, which was the year of the establishment of the Bulgarian state, the moment today, 81, and then in the future, the idea was that communism will inevitably arrive. 
And conveniently, 1981 also marked the 19th anniversary of the establishment of the Bulgarian Communist Party. So the two central ideas of the celebrations merged seamlessly. And here I want to return to the idea that I opened with um, that cultural diplomacy really straddled this fine line between culture, ideology, and propaganda. And you see it very clearly in these images uh, here. This jubilee, this celebration had both uh, domestic and international dimensions just very quickly within the country. The uh, communist regime organized a plethora of events from the opening of monuments to mass events to a prolific publishing enterprise. Uh, but most importantly, the events included a very ambitious international agenda, which included exhibitions of ancient treasures and medieval icons, performances by folk and classical music ensembles, the organization of art exhibits, film weeks, book readings, whose ultimate goal was to secure favorable media coverage in the foreign press, radio, and television, and to advance the country's reputation as an active global player. Now, in the larger book project, I examined these cultural contacts on several levels. I start with the domestic level. I look at the role of culture in Bulgaria. I then extend to the neighbors of Bulgaria in the Balkans, in the Balkan Peninsula. After that, I look at relations between East and West, including the United States, uh, including uh, relations with emigres, and then finally, I also look at Bulgarian cultural relations with Mexico, Nigeria, and India to be able to trace the diversity of cultural contacts during uh, this uh, time uh, period. Now, this is what I call a pericentric perspective. That is, my book centers the perspective of the periphery, pericentric or this the um, combination of periphery and center. So my book centers the historical experience, experience of a small state to emphasize the importance of actors outside of the superpowers in our understanding of how the global cultural order worked. Given that the superpowers viewed culture as secondary to political, economic, and military objectives, my claim is that cultural diplomacy emerged as a good strategy for smaller states to articulate their, um, their and project their global uh, visions. So in the book, I situate uh, my narrative in the context of the late Cold War, in the context of detente, uh, especially from 1975 on with the signing of the Helsinki Final Act, when we see the development of robust um, contact between East and West. And what I claim is that culture often served as the first step in the expansion of East-West contact. But what my analysis in the book overall allows me to do is also revise dominant narrative, uh, narratives of the 1970s as years of doom and gloom. Yet when I view the 1970s from the perspective of small Bulgaria and particularly its cultural um, adventures throughout the world, what I am seeing is actually years of optimism uh, in which the Bulgarian leadership, I might claim, had probably its most successful and most prosperous uh, years. And I'm happy to return to, uh, to this um, question in the Q&A. 
But here I feel I need to provide you with some additional uh, quick um, background information on why um, invest in culture during late socialism in Bulgaria in particular. The Bulgarian communist leadership, particularly the um, longtime dictator Todor Zhivkov, was always interested in culture and he liked to be seen as a sponsor uh, of culture, as a patron of culture. In 1975, his daughter, first daughter Ludmila Zhivkova, actually became a member of the Politburo and a minister of culture. And it was under her, um, under her protection that now investment in culture spread even more in the country. Uh, and what we are seeing is actually a revival of nationalism in particularly with the investment in the building of monuments, the publication of books, the making of movies, particularly on national themes. In this celebration in 1981 of this national anniversary of the establishment of the Bulgarian state was actually the pinnacle of this patriotic slash nationalist attempt of communist elites to uh, engage uh, in cultural diplomacy. And I want to emphasize that the primary objective of communist elites was to build legitimacy at home and to advance their reputation abroad. And this is why they chose culture as the way to advance their uh, agendas. Uh, international cultural events served public relations or reputational strategies. Uh, and their goal was to play up Bulgaria's international role. The Bulgarian leaders were sensitive to their reputation as the most loyal Soviet allies and used this context to project an image of independence. And thus state investment in culture became a tool for the assertion of the prestige as well as the policy agendas of the small state on the world stage. And I want to emphasize again these global aspirations because what you're seeing in this quote is that the Bulgarians are going not only to Washington and London and Paris, but actually Tokyo and Lagos and New Delhi. So really uh, we're seeing this global aspiration of the communist elites. So in the rest of the presentation, what I want to do is to look at cultural contacts in the West, but also in the global South and to try to think about both the manifestations, but also the functions of these cultural contacts. So Bulgarian cultural contacts in the West pursued reputational purposes. And so they focused on so-called representative exhibitions to showcase the best of Bulgarian culture. The logic was to focus on quality rather than, than quantity uh, and to plan, uh, you know, um, really events uh, that would achieve cultural breakthrough. So here is one example from the United States. The Bulgarians organized an exhibition of Thracian treasures at the Metropolitan Museum in New York City. They brought the Pyrrhine Folk Ensemble at Carnegie Hall. And again, the idea here is to bring the best from culture to advance the ideas uh, of, uh, of state and to achieve a breakthrough of Western consciousness as far as the small uh, state. So it's interesting to dwell on the content of these events. The core message of the Bulgarian events was reflected in the motto, a modern nation salutes its past. And the idea was to assert Bulgaria's European identity as one of the oldest states of Europe, 
predating the Greek and Roman civilizations. And the overall, overall emphasis was on history. And actually what we're seeing here is really that the Bulgarians very consciously tried to avoid any use of ideology or propaganda in order to be able to achieve this cultural breakthrough that they desired. So in this um, quest for audiences, they muted the ideological language. They focused on universal human values. And I'm showing you here one example, a Bulgarian poetry reading at the Library of Congress and its uh, coverage by uh, US media where there was the consensus that the reading was successful because the themes were not political, but the poets focused on things such as love, loneliness, but most all the magic of poetry itself. So by tuning, uh, by muting that ideological language and by focusing on culture, not propaganda, in the end, the Bulgarians were actually successful at securing all audiences and media coverage, what was their objective. And um, what we're seeing is media reports actually speak about these endeavors as a brilliant success um, uh, of the Bulgarian state, which managed to put Bulgaria on the Western world's cultural uh, map. Now, I don't want to paint a university uh, universally rosy picture here. And I must emphasize that Bulgarian officials also faced challenges. Their Western partners did not always oblige. Sometimes they objected that they were actually served propaganda. The media did not always publish uh, only positive coverage and some events were not well attended and were even canceled. A particularly challenging task was the Bulgarian interactions with emigres because often it was Bulgarian emigres who came to these events who were the audiences. And very often these emigres, especially in the United States and in West Germany and other places in the West, were hostile to the agendas of um, the communist elites in charge of the country. And they often challenged the official objectives of Bulgarian cultural diplomacy. So Bulgarian officials had to reckon with that possibility uh, as well. And I'm going to give you an example from the Midwest, because in addition to going to New York, Boston, LA, and other prominent uh, cities where the Bulgarians really wanted to make a splash, they also came in great numbers to the Midwest uh, with a focus on Pittsburgh, which had a sizable Bulgarian population and Macedonian as well, but also they came to Columbus and to Ohio State when you might find it curious, they actually tried to establish a Bulgarian studies chair. And in the course of these visits to Ohio State, they also went to a small town about an hour outside of Columbus in Perry County, uh, Ohio, uh, New Lexington, which was the birthplace of Januarius McGeehan, a American journalist who had traveled to Europe in 1817 to join the Paris Commune. And after that, had actually participated in the events of the Russo-Turkish War of 1877-1878, which led to the re-establishment of modern Bulgaria as a state. 
So the Bulgarians came to New Lexington, which already had a monument to Magian, and they started organizing and attending these events on occasion of the anniversary of Magian's death. And 1878 marked the centennial of his death, but they also marked the centennial of the resurrection of modern Bulgarian. So it, Bulgaria, so it was a huge event. Representatives of the Bulgarian state came to the event. There was a um, folk concert in New Lexington. The Ohio uh, House of Representatives declared June of 78 as a uh, week uh, of uh, Magian. Uh, and on occasion of those, those events, the Bulgarian uh, representatives recommended to the Bulgarian government to donate to the city of New Lexington a replica of the monument dedicated to Magian that had been erected in Bulgaria. And this is the copy of the monument. This is actually the original monument in Bulgaria. This replica was then gifted to the city of New Lexington. And here is the replica. Now, once that happened, anti-communist emigres were completely upset that the Bulgarian communist state had managed to assert its agenda. So this anti-communist emigres gathered and they actually commissioned a second statue to Magian um, by a socialist defector, a, um, a, a sculptor, Lubomir Dauchev, who had defected actually to Cleveland just the same year uh, and was conveniently available to, uh, to uh, make uh, this second statue. So you see how often these cultural events became actually sites of tension in which the official representatives of the Bulgarian state also had to reckon with the anti-communist um, emigres in particular who often opposed their agenda and their uh, actions. So it did not always go smoothly and there were many uh, challenges that the Bulgarian representatives were, com were continuously um, handling. Now to, to go quickly through um, the rest of the events I want to talk about here. In addition to engaging with the West, the Bulgarians also invested heavily in cultural exchange, cultural diplomacy with the global South. And actually some of these numbers are staggering. Over 15,000 events were organized in Asia alone, but also in Latin America, in Africa, in Arab states, right? So this was a very ambitious global cultural affair. By far the most important cultural partners for Bulgaria were India and Mexico. And I just want to tell you very quickly uh, what happened in the 1970s in particular. Uh, the Bulgarians established a cultural informational center in New Delhi um, to, popular, to popularize Bulgarian culture in uh, India. The center published a glossy monthly magazine called News from Bulgaria to advertise Bulgarian political, economic, and cultural accomplishments. The University of Delhi established a Bulgarian language professorship in 1977, enrolling 17 majors who studied Bulgarian language, history, and culture. And here you are actually seeing a poetry recital uh, by Bulgarian studies uh, majors. And actually, the scale of the cultural events was really ambitious. I'm just going to give you some numbers so you understand the scale of investment. In 1980, Bulgarian diplomats had held 76 exhibitions, 
organized 242 film projections, 56 celebratory meetings, and distributed over half a million copies of books and magazines. In that year, 1980, there were 82 Bulgarian Indian Friendship Societies representing over 150,000 members who actually paid dues to participate in these uh, meetings with Bulgarian diplomats, celebrations of Bulgarian uh, holidays, uh, and uh, so forth. So you see really massive investment in culture in uh, India. Uh, the Bulgarian cultural efforts in Mexico were perhaps not as wide ranging, uh, yet similarly what we see is the organization of various exhibitions, uh, events. Uh, so here you see the Cultural uh, Week of Bulgaria at, uh, at, um, in, in New Mexico. You see exhibition of contemporary Bulgarian paintings. And here is again this program uh, of cultural uh, events. And perhaps it is interesting for us to think, so why was it necessary for Bulgaria to actually carry out these cultural events? How do we explain this unusually intense cultural affair? And here, what I want to emphasize is the importance of the strong personal relations that developed between political leaders and particularly female political leaders at the highest level. So Ludmila Zhivkova, the, the daughter of the Bulgarian communist uh, leader, um, Todor Zhivkov, struck a personal friendship with Indira Gandhi, uh, both of them daughters of leaders that took their country, countries in radical new directions. And their personal patronage played an important part in the intense cordial relations that developed between the two countries. Similarly, in Mexico, highly placed women played an important role because Zhivko became uh, close friends with First Lady Carmen Romano, picture, uh, pictured right here, who similarly hosted receptions, museum openings, and ceremonies honoring Zhivkova and Bulgarian culture in general. When Zhivkova visited these two countries on official state tours, she often took days off to travel to ancient archaeological sites meet with gurus and sages and explore her personal interests in meditation, theosophy, yoga, vegetarianism. I'm happy to talk more about this in the Q&A. Zhivkova carefully picked the ambassadors, center directors, and cultural figures who will accompany her on these trips. And in many ways, state cultural policy became a tool of the Bulgarian princess, and she was called this in Western press in particularly. So it became a tool of the Bulgarian princess to advance and nurture her personal interests and whims, which again, I want to emphasize here that these are very top-down decisions. Where exactly does culture go is something, Bulgarian culture go, is something decided at the highest level of the Bulgarian state uh, bureau. Now, finally, I just very quickly want to say that Bulgaria also developed uh, very robust cultural relations with Nigeria, the most populous and at the time the most prosperous African country that was experiencing a boom in oil production and had embarked on a huge program of uh, building its infrastructure. And on that occasion, Bulgarian specialists actually managed to secure a contract to build the National Theater in Lagos, 
which was finished in 1976, just in time for the uh, Nigerians hosting of the second World Black and African Festival of Arts and Culture in 1977. Um, it's interesting that this building was built on the model of a building that still exists in Bulgaria, the um, Palace of Culture and Sports in Varna on the Black Sea. Uh, however, this uh, version of the building was six times larger than the prototype and became the center of the celebrations associated with the Second World Black and African Festival of arts and culture. So what you're seeing here is really the merging of economic and cultural cooperation in the face of these contracts that the Bulgarians were pursuing with their Nigerian partners. And on this occasion, the Bulgarians also signed a program for educational uh, and cultural cooperation. So I want you to see again how this template created by the Soviets and the Americans in 1958 still exists 20 years later. It's adopted by countries throughout the world. It's adopted outside of the West. So a country such as Nigeria also participates in this sort of cultural diplomacy. And here are actually some of these cultural events that were organized by Bulgarian um, diplomats throughout Nigeria. So I want to wrap up here by trying to draw out the, draw out the significance of these cultural contacts. Uh, and we can discuss many of the details uh, you know, um, in the Q&A as well, as well. So why were the Bulgarians heavily investing in international culture during this type uh, time? As I mentioned previously, this type of nation branding served the domestic and international policy agendas of Bulgaria's regime. At home, the extensive state-sponsored attention given to culture sought to energize society and bolster the authority of the communist elites in charge of the country by creating new visions of national unity and historical pride. Abroad, the events pursued prestige-making goals by seeking to revise the image of the Zhivkov regime as the most loyal ally of the Soviet Union, while emphasizing Bulgaria's national uniqueness and contributions to humanity. However, I want to emphasize that soft power aspirations also contributed to hard power goals, as cultural outreach facilitated a series of new political, economic, and cultural partnerships around the globe. In other words, very often culture became the first step towards the expansion of also political and economic relations. And Bulgaria now had dynamic, multifaceted relations with countries such as Greece, Austria, West Germany, France, India, Mexico, and Japan, among others. And you will notice that the countries that I listed, all of them are non-socialist uh, states. So you really have the expansion of relations based on culture. So there's no doubt that cultural diplomacy provided a good strategy for the small socialist state to redefine its global standing in concrete ways. Bulgaria now became an active international player uh, through uh, culture. Now here, I also want to make a, a bigger claim 
that this Bulgarian engagement uh, allow, allow us to entertain. And in all of these cases, the Bulgarian cultural programs made possible the articulation of new global imaginaries, which linked a small country on the margins of Europe with some of the most prominent world civilizations. And the Bulgarians really sought out to emphasize the civilizational message. But what is important here is that this is not your typical Western civilization, but actually this is a new, fresh uh, civilizational message that, um, that sought to emphasize the existence of contacts, not only between East and West, North and South, but also across East and South lines. And just to conclude by studying these cultural contacts, what I am also doing with this book is to remind us about the forgotten history of socialist globalization. And again, I can elaborate more, but socialist globalization emerged as an alternative to Western capitalist, capitalist globalization, yet it was forgotten after the end of the Cold War in 1989. Yet when I resurrect the history of these cultural contacts between small Bulgaria and a number of actors throughout the world, what I also do is challenge the idea of Eastern European captivity behind an impermeable Iron Curtain and actually show the variety of cultural contacts across the globe the small Bulgaria also participated in. Thank you very much. And I leave you for a second at least with this image of the diverse cultural contacts. And I will stop sharing here. Theodora, thank you so very much uh, for that. That was a fascinating, uh, a fascinating talk and, and an exploration, as you say, this kind of unknown, well, I think for many of us, probably unknown history of, uh, of the Cold War and of, uh, and of Eastern Europe. Um, Folks are with us today. If you have questions uh, for uh, Professor Agostinova, please, uh, we'd love to get them. Just type them into the, uh, the Q&A, uh, kind of button which is at the bottom of your screen on Zoom. And uh, we'll try to make our way through uh, as many as we can. Uh, we had a few come in in advance and I'll start off with a couple of those while folks were here. We'll type out, uh, type out the questions that they have. Um, I, I guess the first question to ask is how, uh, in the research that you've done, how unusual is uh, usual or unusual uh, is Bulgaria in terms of the the extent of its its cultural kind of uh, diplomatic activities, and also in 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 the ways in which it is it's it was uh, kind of gendered as a kind of female activity, or at least uh, these kinds of public activities of uh, of female leaders from countries. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, was was this something that we saw in other parts of the of the so-called kind of Eastern Bloc of the, the sort of Soviet zone of Eastern Europe, uh, or was Bulgaria unusual in this regard? So cultural diplomacy was used by uh, all Eastern European states, and usually what happened is that states signed these cultural cooperation agreements on a biannual, uh, um, you know, um, basis. Uh, it, so they became a normal part of, of you know, diplomatic relations, an expected and normal part of diplomatic relations. I think what is unique about the Bulgarian case is that in this particular 
uh, time period, in the 1970s, you have the convergence of two factors. Unlike other Eastern European states, for example, Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, uh, Hungary, Bulgaria was relatively quiet politically and its leadership did not face political uh, challenges, such as, for example, if we think um, 1979, 1980s, so the emergence of solidarity in Poland. Uh, you also have a very strong dissident movement in Czechoslovakia. That was not the case in Bulgaria. And in the absence of political challenges, the Bulgarian leadership was actually able to travel extensively because it didn't have to worry about its own political stability. So these were in many ways the golden years of late socialism in Bulgaria. And the other unique aspect here is what is also connected to the second part of your question, the presence of this unique individual, this, this woman, uh, Ludmila Zhivkova, who was uh, uh, really truly an idiosyncratic individual, if I'm to put it uh, you know, politely. Um, she uh, spoke Sanskrit, uh, she studied theosophy, uh, she was a fan of uh, you know, Eastern uh, philosophies and meditation, um, yoga, uh, and so forth. She traveled extensively. She was uh, really uh, very educated in many of these questions. So I have to say that she, she, I mean, it's one of these doings of communist elites. I mean, she was using the state really, I believe so, to, um, to pursue her personal interests. And that's why uh, I think we have to also emphasize that, I mean, this is again, the doing of communist elites. That's great. We have a question about socialist globalization. Uh, so you get a chance to talk a little bit more about that. Um, uh, let me ask you, is this, uh, where can um, uh, she learn more about socialist globalization? Is this uh, phrase your term? Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, yeah, perhaps yeah. Dig, dig deeper into that particular aspect of, uh, of what you found. Yeah, well, so in the last five years, we actually really have um, the publication of various studies that explore the active role of Eastern European states in the developing world, in particular, outside uh, of Europe. Uh, and uh, there are uh, there are studies, uh, most of them actually on Yugoslavia, but also on uh, Romania. Um, I'm trying to think on Hungary, on GDR, East Germany, uh, which are showing the active global engagement of countries, of the smaller countries of Eastern Europe throughout the world. So this is really a burgeoning field. And there are scholars who use the term socialist globalization. There is an edited volume out of Indiana University uh, Press, which is actually called Alternative Globalizations. So that might be the place uh, to look uh, at, um, at this problem. Now, I have to say that I personally am not completely sure that I like the term socialist globalization. Um, I prefer to speak about alternative global connections. And I think this is what's important here is that because the West won the Cold War, uh, after 1989, um, there was an erasure of this prior history of very vibrant global interconnectivity between Eastern Europe and countries in the global South. And my work is part of this new attempt in the scholarship to revive this, whether it was 
Czechoslov Czechoslovak military involvement in Africa, whether it was Romanian involvement with UNESCO, whether it was uh, Yugoslavia and the non-aligned movement and the emergence of specifically Yugoslav cultural modernism connected to the idea of non-alignment, whether it was the attempt of the GDR to enhance its international image through cultural diplomacy and other diplomacy in the third world. We are really seeing that the smaller states of Eastern Europe were active global uh, players. But again, I maintain that Bulgaria is unique in its investment in cultural dip diplomacy specifically. Um, was there, you talked a lot about the, the activities of Bulgaria abroad, in particular with countries like India, Nigeria, Mexico, uh, was there the, the same level of kind of reciprocal cultural events and visited mm -hmm. visits to Bulgaria from these other countries? And, and did the pairings and the tight pairings that you talked about in these cases, did we see those across uh, you know, with, with people coming into Bulgaria as well as going out? So Cold War cultural exchange was based on the premise of reciprocity. When you sign these cultural exchange agreements, usually the two sides are aiming for a balanced cultural program in which one of the sides is not overrepresented, but you know each of them are represented equally. So in order to be able to organize their exhibitions, concerts, and other events, the Bulgarians also had to open up their own country for Western and other cultural influences. And I didn't have time to talk about that. So thank you so much for the question. But what ultimately happened is that um, when Western culture in particular started arriving in Bulgaria, that caused various tensions within the country because the communist regime really wanted to control the message and really wanted only certain aspects of Western culture to come to Bulgaria. So the Bulgarian leadership abhorred mass culture. It was very suspicious of film screenings. Uh, it was very suspicious of um, exhibitions that were not classical. Uh, there were constant controversies what books can be brought into the country. Uh, often the Bulgarians refused to show certain exhibits uh, or asked their uh, guests to remove certain artifacts from the exhibits. So what I want to emphasize here is that it, particularly in this interaction between East and West, culture was not a frivolous matter because it did exemplify you know, ideology and the ideological positioning of each state in the global Cold War uh, context, there were constant controversies. In one famous example, uh, an American diplomat accused the Bulgarians that they were organizing events that served as communist propaganda, and the Bulgarians walked out of the negotiation table. Uh, and just to give you one more example, the Bulgarians were also very, very worried when the, the US embassy invited uh, Bulgarian cultural um, um, experts to come and screen Star Wars uh, because they didn't know what they might expect. So they arrived at the meeting in the company of five political commissars, translators, and various technical staff to make sure that this movie is going to be appropriate for Bulgarian audiences. So there was this constant tension that was evident in this, uh, in this context. Yeah, and it seems that, I mean, there must have been an incredible debate over how to define culture, particularly given that, I mean, looking at the 1970s or 1960s and all the, the kind of counterculture 
and revisions of what culture, uh, what culture was and how it was defined. Um, we have a question about, uh, can you talk a little bit, it goes back to an earlier question about the, you know, how exemplary Bulgaria was, but can you talk a little bit about any, about differences in, in the, the cultural diplomatic programs or activities between different countries in the world, um, you know, comparing perhaps how other communist countries approach this. Um, and I suppose to add on to that, you know, how free were each of these countries to choose how they would represent themselves mm -hmm. and what, you know, what they would decide was worthwhile to take abroad? Mm -hmm. um, you know, was there a template across the region or yeah. was each country really able to make its own decisions about how it presents itself on a, on a cultural diplomatic uh, stage? This is a wonderful question. So generally, um, the socialist states followed the Soviet template. Uh, there's no doubt about it. And in fact, what happened is throughout the Cold War, up until the end of the Cold War, um, representatives, cultural representatives of the socialist states regularly met to coordinate their cultural events. Very often these cultural events, for example, in Nigeria, some of the Bulgarian cultural events occurred in uh, the Soviet cultural center because uh, they borrowed venues and they um, often uh, did that. Uh, the Bulgarians uh, uh, sometimes sought advice from their Western partners how to handle particular cultural programs. Um, so, I mean, there was a degree of, um, I guess, uh, similarity. I mean, there was some similarity between the cultural programs. Um, what I think is more interesting here is to actually think about how cultural diplomacy and cultural exchange was handled differently in the West compared to the East or the socialist bloc. So generally speaking, for the socialist bloc, cultural diplomacy was a huge priority and a very significant part of money, of you know, the budget, of the state budget was invested in culture. In the 1980s, 8% of Bulgarian, excuse me, 4% of Bulgarian GDP was invested in culture, 4%. This is a huge number, right? I mean, just imagine, I mean, uh, uh, what kind of um, uh, events this sort of number buys you. Now, that was not necessarily the same sort of priority for Western states, which operated on free market principles and where culture was often in private hands. Uh, and therefore, first of all, for example, in the United States, uh, the United States Information Agency was not able to dictate to private um, foundations, museums, centers, what sort of programming they are going to, um, to uh, you know, organize. So um, what ultimately happened is that the Bulgarians then would go actually around the official channels, and that happened with all the socialist states, and sign agreements with private entities. So for example, the Bulgarians went and had an, uh, signed a separate agreement with the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, and, um, what then also happened is that there were more Eastern European events organized in the West than Western organ events organized in the East because of these private arrangements. Uh, so there was also a discrepancy between East and West in the number of events organized. And that was a constant topic of, of uh, conversation, but also 
the Bulgarians and also the rest of the socialist bloc were really, really nervous with mass culture. You mentioned that, and I just want to elaborate a little bit. So um, with these official channels, <laughs> the Bulgarians actually coined their own term. They called uh, mass culture basically fake culture. Um, and um, they claimed that what they were doing alternatively is invest in what they called real culture. Of course, here the implication is that mass culture is not real culture. So these tensions between different understandings of culture were constantly in, on the horizon uh, as, uh, again, these uh, events were being negotiated. I think we have time for one more question. And, uh, and I, I, the one I'll, I'll post to you has to do with sort of the, the continuities after the end of the sort of the, the collapse of, uh, of communism in Eastern Europe, uh, these alternative um, international uh, uh, connections, do they continue after 1989? Um, and in what way are they, uh, have they been affected by, by joining the European Union or, um, or any of the kinds of changes over the last sort of 30 plus years? Um, is this something that ends with the end of communism or is there a longer trajectory of the impact of this? And you probably know the answer that, yes, indeed, there is a longer trajectory. Uh, but what happened immediately after 1989, because the aspiration of Eastern Europe was to rejoin Europe, uh, those contacts between Eastern Europe and the Global South were very quickly forgotten and erased. And this is why now, only now, we're seeing the emergence of these new studies on you know, alternative globalizations and socialist globalizations. Because for 25 years, uh, there was no interest in even studying those contacts because the focus was to show the European credentials of all of the Eastern European states and to restore their connection to the West. Therefore, the continuities after 1989 was continuities in contacts with the West. Now, one notable consequence, one notable outcome of this Cold War cultural contacts is they benefited the communist elites who had first conceptualized them and executed them. And then in the process, these communist elites also established their own global networks and their own global contacts. So after the end of the Cold War, communist elites often use these experiences, again, as a first step of them to venture out of Eastern Europe and to actually reestablish these international relations. And I am just going to point out that just several years ago, actually the previous um, leader of UNESCO before the current one was a Bulgarian woman, Irina Bokova, who was the daughter of a prominent um, Bulgarian communist, a member of the Politburo and the editor of chief of the Bulgarian Communist Party newspaper, who began her work uh, in cultural events during the Cold War, and then went on to have a very successful international career, becoming the head of UNESCO for some four years. Um, and this is just one small example to show you that, yes, for some people, the continuities were there, and those were continuities of power and influence, an issue that continues to resonate in Eastern Europe, 
as far as the reincarnation of communist era elites as well. Thank you. Um, thank you all uh, so very much for joining us today. I am so grateful uh, to Professor Dragostinova uh, for joining us today, for sharing her expertise and her passion for history. Uh, please join me in giving her a, a virtual round of applause. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we'd also like to thank the, uh, the College of Arts and Sciences, especially Claire Davidson and Jade Lack, uh, and also the History Department, the Harvey Goldberg Center for Excellence in Teaching, the Cleo Society, the Bexley Public Library, uh, and the magazine Origins, Current Events, and Historical Perspective for their sponsorship. And once again, thank you, our audience, for your excellent questions and your ongoing connection to Ohio State. Stay safe and healthy, uh, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.